Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookshelf. The Faculty Division's podcast series provides commentary by authors and others on important new books and works of legal scholarship. I'm your host, Bridget Flaherty. In this episode, Professor Ozen Farrell of Lewis and Clark Law School and Professor Tom Ginsberg of the University of Chicago Law School will discuss Professor Farrell's new book, The Democratic Coup d'Etat. In The Democratic Coup d'Etat, Professor Varrell challenges the conventional public understanding of the coup d'etat, which often evokes the image of a militarized group of elites who seek to overthrow an existing government in order to consolidate power. Often, we consider coups contrary, and even more a threat, to democracy. Professor Varrell argues that coups do not always match that public understanding, and often are used to establish democracy or advance democratic principles. He traces democratic coups throughout history, from 5th century BC Athens, to actions in the American colonies against corrupt British officials, to the democracy-building revolts against military regimes in countries like Guinea-Bissau, Portugal, and Colombia in the 20th century. In his historical analysis, Professor Verrill explores questions regarding the political nature of coups and the differences in military powers which can lead to the fostering or suppressing of democratic societies. Our conversation will begin with Professor Verrill's short introduction to his book, and will be followed by Professor Ginsburg's comments to which Professor Rule will respond. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. We hope this broadcast, like all our programming, will serve to stimulate discussion and further exchange on the topics they address. And now, Professor Ozen Barrel on the Democratic Coup d'etat. The term military coup d'etat, which is French for stroke of the state, brings to mind coups staged through backroom plots by power-hungry generals. So coups remind us of Muammar Gaddafi. Coups remind us of Augusta Pinochet. Coups remind us of scores of other ruthless military dictators who wreak havoc on their local populations and set their national progress back by decades. Once they assume power, they stay in power. We tend to believe that all coups fit this pattern. They look the same, they smell the same, they present the same threats to democracy. It's a concise, powerful, self-reinforcing idea. It's also wrong. In this book, I challenge this academic and popular consensus about military coups. And distilled to its core, my argument is simple. Sometimes a democracy is established through a military coup. A democratic coup happens when the domestic military turns its arms against the dictatorship, temporarily takes control of the government, and oversees a transition process to democracy. Now, of course, a military coup itself is an undemocratic event. In a coup, the military takes power by force or the threat of force. So I'm using the term democratic in the book to refer to the regime type that the coup produces. The coup ends with the free and fair elections of civilian leaders, and the military's retreat to the barracks. In many ways, I'm an unlikely author of a book that considers coups with democratic potential. I was born in Istanbul, Turkey, at a time when the country was under military rule. In 1980, the year before my birth, the Turkish military seized power from a civilian government in a brutal coup. In the ensuing two years, the coup makers disbanded the parliament, they drafted a repressive constitution, and they committed widespread human rights abuses. And so having personally been through these events, I was, for the majority of my life, quick to condemn all coups as anti-democratic events. 
But in 2011, as I was sitting in my apartment in Chicago watching the Arab Spring unfold, at the time, the Egyptian military had just toppled the Hosni Mubarak dictatorship. The Tunisian military had refused orders by their dictator, Ben Ali, to repress the population. My mind drifted to an earlier coup in Turkey. This was a coup of a much different caliber that my grandparents had lived through. In 1960, the Turkish military toppled the dictatorship and turned power over to democratically elected leaders. Under the military's supervision, Turkey emerged from an 18-month transition process as a genuine multi-party democracy with a thriving civil society and what's widely considered the most liberal constitution in Turkish history. So I began to research whether there are other coups that fit this pattern and came across numerous examples that no serious academic can dismiss as measurement errors or extreme outliers. It was the military in ancient Greece that stood up to the dictatorship of the 400 that threatened to end democratic rule. It was the military in England with the help of William of Orange that overthrew King James II and transitioned the country from absolute to constitutional monarchy. It was coups staged by citizen-soldier militias here at home in the American colonies that paved the way for the American Revolution and the establishment of the modern United States. In the book, I also covered numerous 20th century coups that toppled dictators and established democracy in countries as diverse as Portugal and Colombia and Guinea-Bissau. In the book, I grapple with several baffling questions. Why would militaries that loyally serve a dictatorship turn their arms against a dictator? After seizing power from a dictator, why would imposing generals, armed with tanks and guns and all, voluntarily surrender power to civilian politicians? What distinguishes militaries that help build democracies from those that destroy them? Now, ideally, of course, it would be civilians, not military leaders that would oversee a transition process from dictatorship to democracy, but often the conditions necessary for that ideal transition are absent. So the civilian leaders may be unwilling to give up power. The dictatorship may crush budding popular movements before they even take root. The press and the civil society may be malfunctioning under the oppressive might of a dictatorship. So if other paths to democratization have been blocked by a dictator, the military, equipped with just sheer military might, may be the only institution capable of toppling the dictatorship and installing a democracy. Before I turn things over to Tom Ginsburg for his comments, let me mention that if you're interested in a free chapter from the book, you can text the word COUP, so C-O-U-P, to 345-345. So that's the keyword COUP, text to 345-345, and you'll automatically receive a free chapter from the book. So with that, let me turn things over to Tom Ginsburg for his comments. So suppose you're in a country like Venezuela today, where you've had a democratically elected regime which has gradually undermined every single democratic institution, and you oppose this regime, and the only, you know, sort of functioning institution in society with any potential to register opposition to the regime is the military. What do you want? What would you hope would happen? Well, I submit you probably would hope for the military to step in and remove Nicolas Maduro and his regime, extremely unpopular, driven the country into turmoil and suffering by any objective definition. Now, why doesn't that happen? Well, you know, obviously one reason has to do with the general norm against coups d'etat, even if they are for a democratic purpose. 
And in particular, it's because of a regional norm in Latin America with such a long history of military intervention, where they just don't really tolerate any military intervention to overthrow a democratic government or a government of any type. And so if such a coup was to transpire, what would happen? Well, you'd likely have a lot of opposition from regional neighbors, even though none of them like Nicolas Maduro. So this is kind of the setup which invites Ozanvarol's democratic coup d'etat to make its important intervention, saying, well, maybe, you know, in some cases, a coup d'etat can be democratic. And we certainly have some examples. I study Thailand, for example. And in Thailand, you know, they've had many, many coups, and some of them might even be called democratic coup d'etat. That is, they return power quickly to a democracy. They're designed to save democracy from some corrosive force. The problem, of course, and this is a problem in some sense for the book, is how to define ex ante which coups d'etat would be good and which ones are not. Of course, the policy of the United States and many other countries is just to say, well, we can't figure that out. We want to disincentivize overuse of the label of democratic coup d'etat because almost every coup maker says that they're going to restore democracy, whether they do so or not. And simply to build up a strong norm against that and so not to support any of them. I think it's been a remarkably successful policy, the blanket policy against coups. The number of coups that have happened in recent years is very, very small. Instead, we see a kind of new form of autocratic regression, I guess you could say, which is sort of democracy dying by a thousand cuts. And that seems to me to be the big threat that we face today. So the question is, should we return to the coup as a kind of useful mechanism for democracy promotion? You know, I found the argument of the book convincing, but I still am troubled by how we would determine which ones are good, which ones are bad, ex-ante. Ex-post, it's easy to tell. But what you need is an ex-ante rule because you're going to be setting up an incentive structure in which potential coup makers select into as they're choosing whether or not to undertake a coup d'etat in light of what they think the reaction is going to be. It's easy when they know the reaction is going to be negative. It raises very high stakes and the situation would have to be very, very grave for them to engage in a coup d'etat. And then they would hope for kind of a soft reaction from the international community. We do observe that from time to time. So, you know, I guess my bottom line is I acknowledge that the phenomenon exists. It's normatively attractive in many circumstances. And yet there's this meta question, which is really difficult to answer. And, you know, that's where I'd invite a little more speculation and a little more articulation of the idea. Now, I suppose a second question or a deeper question is, you know, what's kind of a structure of civil military relations that might select for democracy promoting military officers? And there, I think that there's also some more work to be done. Is there internal things that could be done in terms of the way militaries are structured, in terms of the officer promotion system, etc., that might either deter or incentivize the democratic coups d'etat and disincentivize those that we think are bad? I'd also invite more work on that question. But all in all, I think it's a great book and certainly thought-provoking. Everyone's going to have to grapple with the argument. Thank you so much to Professor Ginsburg for those insightful comments. So let me begin with his question about ex ante. So how do we determine beforehand which direction that the coup will go in? Because he's absolutely right that there are countless coups that begin with promises of a transition to democratic rule and end up in a very different place. So the 1952 coup against King Farouk in Egypt, for example, begin with promises of a transition to democracy, but then General Nasser quickly consolidated power. 
Another example that comes to mind is a coup that Napoleon Bonaparte and several colleagues staged against the French Directory in the late 1790s. The Directory was an authoritarian council of five men. Some of Napoleon's colleagues favored a transition to republicanism, but Napoleon quickly consolidated control. So how do you determine ex ante where the coup will take the country? How do we know if we want the military to play this role in toppling a dictatorship? Let me mention before I answer the meat of Tom's question that the historical reality is that the military plays a role in almost all democratic transitions, and that role is often a decisive one. In some cases, the military's role is destructive, so the military may obey demands by a dictatorship and crush a budding revolution as was the case in the 1989 democratic protests on Tiananmen Square in China. But in other cases, which make up the subject of my book, the military refuses orders to suppress a popular opposition against an authoritarian government and instead turns their arms against the regime. So the question is not whether the military should play a role in democratic transitions, as the military almost always does. Instead, the question, and I think this is what Professor Ginsburg was asking, the question is, under what circumstances do militaries support rather than hamper democratic transitions? And is there a way to answer that question ex ante? So it's a really difficult question because coups tend to have a life of their own. (laughs) Military officers can disappoint even the most seasoned experts. Professor Ginsburg's question reminded me of a quote from the physicist and Nobel laureate Richard Feynman, who's one of my personal heroes, but he once remarked, imagine how much harder physics would be if electrons had feelings. Well, unlike electrons, military officers do have feelings, as well as other very unpredictable human qualities like egos, making the business of precise forecasting very, very difficult. That said, it is possible to, I think, identify certain factors, aside from blind luck, which always plays a role, that set apart militaries that build up democracies rather than destroy them. We tend to speak abstractly of the military or armies as if the institution were consistent in its composition and structure across different nations, but the military is a variable, not a constant. So asking whether militaries are naturally dangerous to democracy is like asking whether water is naturally a liquid, solid, or a gas. Well, it depends. Militaries are much more complicated, diverse, and multidimensional than conventional wisdom suggests. So there are several factors I discuss in the book, the primary one. The citizen-soldier model emerges as a common thread among militaries that have toppled dictatorships. In these militaries, the leadership is often made up of career professionals, but the rank-and-file members are conscripts, also called citizen-soldiers. They serve a mandatory term in the military, usually a few years, before returning to civilian life. And these conscripts are civilians first and soldiers second. The rotation of civilians in and out of the military creates this feedback loop between the military and the civilian population that keeps the military in touch with civilian values. So if you order these conscripts to turn against the people, they are more likely to desert or defect than professional soldiers. Because from the perspective of the conscripts, the crowds aren't just anonymous masses. They're friends and neighbors and family members. And instead of risking significant defections by the conscripts, the military leadership may refuse to follow regime orders to shoot at protesters and instead topple the dictatorship. And the empirical evidence supports this theory 
popular revolutions in the 21st century have tended to succeed in countries with mandatory conscription. So, you know, several examples that come to mind include Georgia in 2003, Ukraine and Lebanon in 2005, Kyrgyzstan in 2005, Tunisia and Egypt in 2011. In contrast, revolutions tend to fail in countries with volunteer armies or selective conscription. And so the examples there would be like Zimbabwe in 2008, Iran in 2009, and Bahrain in 2011. To be sure, there are cases to the contrary. So cases of conscripts firing on fellow citizens, most prominently during the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests in Beijing that I already mentioned. These tend to be rare instances. They certainly do happen. And often they result when the regime selectively deploys soldiers who are unlikely or unable to identify with the intended victims of the regime violence. So in the Tiananmen Square case, for example, the government deployed soldiers from rural areas, many of whom had actually never been to Beijing before, to crush this urban protest by highly educated elite, primarily students, that were protesting on the square. So it was far more difficult for the soldiers to identify with the protesters that they were ordered to shoot at. The Portuguese military is also a good example of the role that mandatory conscription can play in the trajectory that the military takes in terms of promoting or hampering democracy. Portuguese military toppled what was then Western Europe's oldest dictatorship in 1974 and supervised a two-year transition process that ended with the free and fair elections of civilian leaders. At the time, in many countries, the military was isolated from society, but Portugal was one of the latest European powers to cling to its colonial ventures in Africa. And these continuous colonial wars made isolation of the military impossible. To supply the military machine from a small population, the regime mandated a two-year military service for all men, and by the time of the coup in 1974, 1.5 million Portuguese had served overseas, and one in every four adult males was in the armed forces. The low pay levels of the military officers also required them to work in the civilian sector to supplement their income, which kept them in frequent contact with civilians. So over time, in a very real sense, the armed forces became the Portuguese society, and they were well positioned to topple the dictatorship in 1974 and oversee a transition process to democracy. For similar reasons, many founders of the United States were deeply skeptical about maintaining a military of professional soldiers, primarily because British kings had used a standing army to crush political opponents. In colonial America, citizen soldiers were called to service two to three times a year for military review and training. They wore their daily civilian clothes instead of military uniforms. So many of the founders considered the citizen soldier model, which we call the militia, to be far less dangerous than a professional army. And nearly a century before the American colonies declared independence, these citizen soldiers in the American colonies staged several coups, primarily in Massachusetts and New York, that toppled corrupt governors that had been appointed by the British crown. And although those coups didn't achieve independence from the crown, they made notable strides toward more representative government, which culminated in a full-blown revolution against the crown in 1776. I want to close off by saying a few words about Venezuela because Tom led his comments with the ongoing situation in that country, and rightfully so. So at this point in time, a full-blown coup against the Maduro dictatorship appears unlikely just because 
the current levels of discontent within the military in Venezuela don't appear to be strong enough. There are certainly soldiers that have defected from the regime and called out Nicolas Maduro's authoritarianism as the reason for why they are defecting and joining the uprising against Mr. Maduro. And Maduro is actually himself very aware of the looming threat from his armed forces. So like his predecessor Chavez, he is engaged in strategic engineering to ensure that his military remains royal to him. He appointed cronies to the military's top brass. He actually ended up elevating like close to 200 officers to the rank of general in a single day. He's showered them with substantial privileges. He's appointed an anti-coup committee to purge officers with questionable alliances. So those strategies, I think, have actually worked and reduced the possibility of a military coup, but I don't think they have completely eliminated it. The benefits that have been given out by Mr. Maduro went primarily to the military's top brass, but the mid-level officers, and particularly the rank and file, have been marginalized by his government as well and continue to languish along with the rest of Venezuela's population. And so these soldiers at some point in time may have an incentive to reconsider their loyalties to the regime. And actually, the opposition has been deliberately courting the sympathies of the military with the head of the parliament, which is controlled by the opposition, at one point asked the armed forces to break their silence. So at the time, at least, the coup seems very unlikely for the reasons that Professor Ginsburg mentioned certainly would not be supported by many countries in Latin America. And I should also mention that haphazard coup attempts by a small group of isolated officers would actually make matters far worse because I could imagine Mr. Maduro would emulate the tactics of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who utilized a foiled coup attempt against him in July 2016 as an excuse for intensifying his crackdown on the political opposition. I'll also mention the military's role in Venezuela doesn't need to take the form of a full-blown coup. So the military, in some cases, can allow a revolution to go forward simply by stepping aside and refusing to defend the Maduro government. There are several historical examples of this. In Serbia, for example, the dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic collapsed only after his military withdrew his support from his government following persistent street protests. In Romania, the revolution against the Ceausescu dictatorship was made possible only by the withdrawal of the military forces tasked with suppressing the rebellion and protecting the regime. So at the moment, the Venezuelan military is supporting the Maduro dictatorship in large part. It is the levy that's keeping the democratic movement at bay to protect the regime. And only if the military breaks can the river of democracy jump the banks. So with that, I'll close things off. Thank you so much to Professor Tom Ginsburg for his insightful comments. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bookshelf. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or policy issues. All expressions of opinion were those of the speaker. For more podcasts and commentary, please visit the Federalist Society website at fedsoc.org commentary podcast, or subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Google Play.